Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 56. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Eamon Butler. Eamon is an economist and co-founder and now director of the Adam Smith Institute. He's a graduate of the University of St. Andrews and has published books on Adam Smith, Frederick Hayek, Milton Friedman, and Ludwig von Mises. He's also the co-author of 40 Centuries of Wage and Price Controls, How Not to Fight Inflation. So welcome to the show, Eamon. Yeah, thanks very much. Nice to be on. Eamon, what drew you to the world of economics, and in particular, Austrian economics? Uh, Well, I think I started really uh, looking at uh, public policy. And I think that uh, when I was growing up in the 50s and and early 60s, I think there was an awful lot wrong with public policy. Um, And I think it was very confusing to people. And I think most people didn't have any say on it. So I I started to get interested in that. And um, I actually studied economics uh, as one of my subjects, uh, many subjects at at university in Scotland, where you, you do a lot of different subjects and economics was one of them. I thought it was quite interesting. Um, But uh, then I joined the brain drain and went to America. And it was interesting. I saw in America things that um, I was told here were theoretically impossible, like they had competition in telephones. And my economics professor told me that was impossible, couldn't happen. (laughs) Um, So I thought, well, this is a very interesting subject. So with with colleagues, I came back and uh, we really started uh, looking at um, public services and privatization and that kind of thing. and uh, and then I just uh, you, you know that so that really is my interest in, in in economics. I think probably in terms of Austrian economics, um, it was John Blundell who uh, used to run the. Well, he actually at, at that time in the late seventies, he was running the uh, Association of Small Business uh, and Self-Employed. Um, but he was always interested in these ideas. He'd gone to London School of Economics, where F.A. Hayek had taught many years before. Um, so he understood sort of Austrian economics, and he used to uh, have this uh, club that met once a year called the Karl Menger Society, named after the founder of the Austrian School. And I went along to those, and I thought these ideas were very interesting. Eamon, why do you think um, Austrian economics is is having to play catch-up against, for example, the Keynesian or the Neo-Keynesian school? Well, I, I think it's always been rather esoteric. I mean, I, mean, I, I think there are two reasons. Um, firstly, that it's, it's, it's actually quite difficult to understand. Um, mainstream economics, you can do, and this is Keynes's brilliance, um, he didn't really use graphs, but you can easily express the, the, the mainstream economic ideas in a few graphs. Uh, and everybody can look at those and grasp those and, and see what's going on. And it's it's fine. And, you know, you you um, have more unemployment, you're going to get less inflation or less inflation, you're going to get more un- unemployment and you, uh, government investment. Well, then the GDP goes up, all that sort of stuff. It just looks so wonderful and easy. Whereas Austrian economics are telling you, no, actually, things are very much more difficult because you're dealing with individuals. In, uh, economics is about the choices made by individuals. And the trouble is that individuals are very, as the Americans would say, ornery critters, and they don't necessarily do what you think, you think they're going to do. Uh, so uh, 
in many cases, they're not actually predictable, or you don't get the sort of smooth uh, graph. What you get is um, a, a smooth graph up to a point, and then a, a blip in, in how people behave, or you haven't the faintest idea. It's just a fog, not a, not a graph. So it's quite difficult, I think, to explain these sorts of ideas to uh, a layperson, uh, and even to undergraduates. So Austrian economics has always been a sort of graduate thing. And then also, of course, it went through a period where um, you had the likes of, I suppose, Mises and, and Murray Rothbard, who were very doctrinaire about these things and, and, and made it into a sort of cult. And then the, uh, everybody else felt rather excluded. So it's only now with people like um, Peter uh, Betke and uh, Larry White uh, and all of these uh, guys that that Austrian economics is really opening up more and it's engaging more with mainstream economists um, and it's doing lots of interesting and exciting stuff. What do you think about behavioural finance and the work that Daniel Kahneman has done? How does that fit in with Austrian economics? I'm against behavioural economics. I think that people start with a preconception of how the world ought to be and how people ought to behave and then they impose a framework on that. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you think about things like the oh, uh, the, the nudge unit in, in 10 Downing Street. And, you know, what's that about? Well, it's about people, people make their own choices, but we've decided that they're making the wrong choices. And really, if only they were better informed or if we push them in a, a, the right direction, um, then they'd be very much better off. Well, I, you know, that's a very paternalist way of looking at people and I don't think it's right uh, and that I think is my my problem with behavioral economics is that it's uh, um, it, it's got it's got a it's got its own agenda. Right. So choices, someone's made a choice for you and they're trying yeah. to make you, yeah, I see, I see what you're saying there. That's, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, they frame all of their principles and so on in, in terms of what they want to achieve and not what ordinary people actually do. And, and this again, you see, it takes you back to Austrian economics because what you have to realize is that economics is about individual choices. And uh, frankly, how can you second guess individual choices? And uh, and we talk about things like, oh, well, let's incentivize people to save for their retirement um, because they're not saving enough. Well, you know, that's your opinion. Uh, Other people might have priorities. I mean, when I was uh, youngish or just starting work and so on, um, lots and lots of insurance brokers told me I needed to save more for my pension. And I decided, no, I'm young. I've, I've got a wife. I'm going to get a young family very shortly. I need the money now yeah. and I can save later. Um, so that's my choice. It shouldn't be anybody else's choice. And, and I don't think that you should necessarily coerce people into, into doing those things. And most people, you know, we know from Friedman's permanent income uh, hypothesis that people actually do plan things throughout their lives. They, they, they plan to, for a, a stable lifetime income and they're actually very good at it. You were uh, instrumental in founding the Adam Smith Institute, uh, Eamon. Mm-hmm. How did that come to about what what was the intention? What 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 was and is the intention of the uh, that body? Well, that goes back to when uh, we were at or had left university. I was still halfway through a PhD um, in philosophy, um, and we all there were three of us: um, my brother and uh, Madison Perry and myself. 
And uh, we all decided one by one to join the brain drain because Britain was going nowhere and lots of people were joining the brain drain. So we all went to America where we had friends and contacts. And uh, we we saw interesting things there. And then one by one, we sort of felt, yeah, but uh, you, you know, Britain might be in a bad way, but it is at least our country. And we'd seen things in America. We thought, um, you know, people in, in the UK should know about these things and how they work. And similarly, we saw <clears throat> Americans looking at things like, oh, can't we have a national health system, which we knew was a disaster in the UK. So uh, we came back to the UK and um, uh, started the institute. I came a little later, but my colleagues started first. And... Um, uh, the idea was to, uh, uh, to ex export and import ideas across the Atlantic. As it happened, uh, very shortly after, about a year later, Mrs. Thatcher was elected in the UK. So we had a bit of an open goal in terms of uh, looking at free markets and introducing uh, market ideas into public policy. So there's an element of, if you like, being Thatcherite foot, foot soldiers to the... That, would that be fair? No, I, I, I think we were... Uh, I wouldn't say foot soldiers. I think we we were intellectual leaders yeah. uh, on on things like privatisation, for example. I mean, we basically invented the word uh, because everybody was talking about denationalisation. We have to denationalise the steel industry and so on. And we said that this is ridiculous. What that what that suggests is that you're just going to give it back to its old owners, and you know that's water under the bridge. Uh, if you're going to make it into a private corporation and stop it losing a million pounds of taxpayers' money a day, you need a new strategy. So uh, throughout all of the privatizations, I mean, starting with um, British Telecom, but, but even uh, National Freight before that, we came up with solutions to, to do these things. And I think it was really uh, we prepared the ground, and then that makes it easy for the politicians then to do things. You know, politicians will only do things after they've explored all other possibilities, and uh, uh, you know they, they they like to know, they like to be confident that there is uh, some brain power that's uh, that's telling people this is a good thing to do, and and that it can work. Um, otherwise, they're sailing on an uncharted waters. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think we were the intellectual leading edge on on privatisation, certainly, and and contracting out in local services and so on. To bring things um, strictly up to speed, uh, is Brexit going to happen? I haven't the faintest idea, <laughs> and uh, I've been saying that since the referendum two and a half years ago. People have been saying to me, "How does how is this going to work out?" And I've said every day. I haven't the faintest idea, and I don't think anybody has. Um, I think that even those who are in the thick of it uh, haven't the foggiest idea as to how it's going to, to play out. So and absolutely anything could happen. Do you think the two-party system in the UK can survive this torturous process? <laughs> it's survived a lot worse than this over the centuries. <laughs> and uh, uh, yes, well, I think we are. As I said, I'm just actually writing a, a little book on democracy. Um, I started off um, thinking I must write a book ex explaining to people in, in developing countries how democracy works and why democracy is a good thing. And then the more I read about democracy, the more I think I'm not quite sure it's a good thing. I, so I, th I thought I might call it one cheer for democracy. Um, but it's under strain at the moment, I think partly because our leaders, not just in the UK, but all over the world, have made themselves into a different class, if you like. We, we have a political class. Um, it used to be that 
uh, politics was something that you you did as a, a public service, and then you went back and, and did your day job, um, you or you went back into into business or or whatever. And if you go to Mount Vernon, just south of Washington D.C., which is George Washington's house, um, you go there, and it's actually it's a working farm. And you go into the house and all of the pictures and all of the plaster work and all the decoration on the chairs and tables and things, they're all um, scenes of uh, fruit and vegetables and farming scenes and all of that kind of stuff. And it makes you realize that George Washington was uh, someone who went to Washington in order to do his duty for his country, but then couldn't wait to get back home and do a proper job. Um, and that's really what we want of our politicians. You know, we don't want them as being a separate class where you you start at university and you you become chairman of some labor club or Tory club or something, and then you get become a local councillor, and then uh, and, and then you go and work for a uh, a PR agency or a, a trade union, and then you get a, a a bad seat to fight, and then you get a good seat to fight, and then you become a junior minister, and blah, 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 and you go up through the ranks, and you never actually see the real world. You never actually have to deal with a balance sheet. Uh, you've got absolutely no idea about paying wages and things like that. Everything is done for you. You've got no no sense of the real life at all. And so I think people feel that that they've, they've been, they're cut off from this new class, this this political class. Um, and I think that's the reason why you're getting people just being uh, a, an annoying to politicians and, and electing uh, you know far right in Europe and electing Trump and and voting for Brexit and all just to inconvenience the, the politicians. Well, good thing too. You have a, a letter in today's Telegraph in relation to the so-called porn ban. Yeah, um, which I suspect is a reflection of, a, of a, let's say, a libertarian. Yes, event. absolutely. Do you have? Um, how do you feel about the the, the Article Thirteen so-called meme ban on the internet? Uh, well, I, again, I, I think uh, I think we've overegged that, or at least the European Union has overegged it. Um, that uh, most of these things are perfectly innocent. Yes, you know, some of them might be copyright material but they're not really they're not being used in any malicious way to um to, to ease business out of people or something like that they're, they're being used as jokey things and i think probably we need to recognize that it's one, it's one of these cases where uh, it's very difficult to put in a hard and fast uh, uh, rule and you know one of my concerns about um eu membership and this is one of the reasons why Okay, I voted to stay in in 74, but I voted to come out uh, in 2016, is that I think that the, the British idea of common law, where it's basically the courts and court cases and judges that decide things, um, that has been uh, completely smothered by the sort of top-down rule-driven continental law. And if you have a top-down law system, then you have to, you have to make rules for everything. <clears throat> And, uh, uh, you, you know, you go to Brussels and, and they say, oh, well, we're introducing new laws on that and it could be anything, um, uh, homeopathic medicine. And you say, well, why do you need that? And they say, oh, because there aren't any. We have to have rules. And No, you don't. Let people do what they want. And then if it causes a problem, it's going to get to court. And then a judge will say, no, you can't do that anymore. And that's precedent. And then you can do that in the future. It's very much more flexible. 
than having a top-down uh, regulation. And this is the difficulty with the European uh, Union to me, that it's, that it's focused on top-down regulation in the European uh, continental law uh, tradition. Um, and it's inflexible. Uh, and this is why the UK is by far the leader in terms of entrepreneurship and so on, because you just get on with things and do things. And it's only if there's a problem are we going to stop you. You don't have to wait for some person in authority to give you permission to do do anything. The economic validity of, of bringing all currencies into one and in the euro, do you see problems with that? I mean, obviously there have been problems um, in the economies of uh, working at different speeds. But per se, do you think that's something that eventually will break up or do you think it's it's a project that will survive? Well, I hope it breaks up. But I, I, I'm actually surprised that it lasted so long, that it has lasted so long. Me too. Uh, uh, you know, many people, I mean, Milton Friedman, I remember, said, oh, it'll last, you know, a year or two. I think what the economists have failed to understand is that this isn't an, an economic concept. This is a political concept. And there's no limit to the amount of political capital that the parties involved will throw at this exercise. And if you remember, when the thing was established, Greece clearly didn't qualify. And yeah. they, only, they only got in by fiddling the figures. Italy clearly didn't qualify. But Italy was one of the founder members. You've got to have Italy in. So it's a political project. And, and, and those two countries in particular, and, you know, possibly Spain and Portugal, should never really have been uh, members at all. Um, uh, it, it, it's not surprising. It's, it, uh, uh, you know, people say, well, America is, a, cust is, a, is a, a single currency area. Yes, but it's also got a single welfare system so that if, I don't know, the oil price plummets and, and people in Texas start losing their jobs, then dollars go from Washington to Texas and then Texas revives and, and that's fine. We don't really have that in Europe. And one of the reasons why I was much against joining the euro is I think if you have a currency union, you have to have a fiscal union. That means you know, you're going to have You've got to have a single welfare system throughout Europe. You've got to have your tax regimes need to be the same. And that, I think, is the ambition uh, in, on continental Europe. Uh, but I don't think that we're going to be – we can be part of it because our trading systems and so on are just so completely different. We, we have different partnerships throughout the world, uh, a long history of trade. Um, and actually, some other European countries like uh, Netherlands and so on have that as well. Um, so there are going to be enormous uh, strains, and uh, uh, who knows? I mean, I mean, anything could could break break it apart. And uh, the tragedy there would be that lots of other people would be annihilated in the in the explosion. If we look at the the late nineties, when Asia had an, a financial crisis because they had pegged their currencies to the U.S. dollar, they went through a period of of um, of economic hardship as their currencies weakened um, back down to levels where they should have been. And, if, you know, as markets go, they overshoot. But eventually that sowed the seeds of the prosperity in Asia because the currencies could float. I think that's the problem in the Eurozone at the moment. The currencies are holding the economies back. If if we had the lira or the lira of Mark II or whatever the currencies for the, the various sovereign nations back again, then no doubt they would decline and there would be this this hardship. But I think the longer term, 
it would be a big boon to the economies. Well, that, that's exactly what would would happen. And uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm distressed about this because I have, well, I mean, I have relatives in Italy, for example. I can just see you know, the the Italian economy hasn't grown in in ten years. Yeah. And. Uh, what it needs to, to do is to devalue so that lots more Brits go and you know, take up the sun in in, in, in Italy. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's a no-brainer. Um, you know, that's that's the best way to do it. But you can't do that because you're locked into this uh, into this political system. And uh, you know, if you said, "All oh, right, well, we're going to uh, to do something about Italy," and uh, then uh, you know, it, then the whole project is uh, is weakened and, and falls apart. One of your a book uh, that you co-authored, uh, Eamon, is uh, one of my favourites in financial history, a book called 40 Centuries of Wage and Price Controls. It's <laughs> a long why, time ago. <laughs> why is it that people constantly have to be reminded of the lessons of history? Do we never learn anything? Um, well, we learn, uh, but then our successors have to learn again. Uh, people learn. Governments don't learn. Um, and people come and go. Uh, so you always have to keep saying these things. It was one of the most remarkable things. I mean, we, we did a, when we started, we did a, a big uh, project called the Omega Project. And it was basically a report on every government department and what they should do, uh, how we should uh, reform them. And we we finished this project and then we thought, well, that's it. We've, we've said everything. We don't need to say anything anymore. Now we can pretty well shut up. But no, you have to keep saying it over and over and over again because people just, you know, they haven't heard. They New people come up and they haven't heard it and old people forget it and, and so on. Um, so I, I think that this is a constant battle. And the thing with um, things like wage and price controls is that they look easy. Right? You've got rising prices, and Nixon did this in America in the 70s, and then he did the same thing. Uh, so you say, right, well, uh, in that case, we're, we're going to have uh, a law saying you can't raise, raise wages by more than you know, 4% or whatever it is, and you can't raise prices by, by so much. But that has been tried so many times over uh, f four millennia, uh, go going back to Hammurabi of Babylon, who actually had official prices carved in stone. But nevertheless, it didn't stop people from putting their prices up and, and because uh, it, you know, individuals aren't the, aren't the cause of inflation. The, the, the cause of rising prices is governments and central banks. And once you've got them under control, then you might have, to have a, a bit more luck. If you've, you've raised the issue of central banks, do we need central banks? Could, could no, we no, survive no, no. without central banks? Yes, of course we can. We've survived many hundreds of years without central banks. Why do we need central banks? Um, if, interest rates, you know, what do central banks do? Well, they, they print money and they set interest rates. Well, in terms of printing money, they've made a bit of a fist of that, haven't they? I mean, we've got a huge inflation, particularly, um, you know, since the Keynesian uh, revolution, uh, which I don't think you should blame entirely on Keynes. He was writing at a period of de depression when expansion made made sense. But I, I think his uh, acolytes tended to think this was immortal wisdom and, and would do for any any time. So we've, we overinflated and uh, uh, likewise with with interest rates. I mean, um, the, the 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 Bank of England now has interest rates at emergency levels, which it's had for years and years and years. This is crazy. This is this is uh, Alice in Wonderland stuff. So I think that they're pretty bad at doing what they 
do. And I think that if we had competition in uh, banks and allowed banks to to promote their own currency or anybody else actually to promote their own currency, then people could choose which currency they thought was more stable. Uh, in fact, one of our uh, earliest, if not our first publication, was a, a little booklet called the Suffolk Bank. Uh, and uh, the Suffolk Bank system in uh, America in the early 1800s, banks issued their own currency. Everybody knew which ones were sound and which ones weren't. And uh, if people thought a, a particular bank's currency wasn't much good, then they would only accept it at uh, uh, you know 90 cents on the dollar or, or whatever. So the whole system cleared. There was uh, an incentive for banks to, to remain uh, robust, which there isn't, of course, today. Um, and uh, it worked absolutely fine without taxpayers having to bail anybody out. It was a way of keeping them honest. That that's fantastic. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. If your currency was no good, then people wouldn't accept it, and you'd go bust. <laughs> Brilliant. Can big government ever be reversed? It's very difficult. Um, even Mrs. Thatcher struggled, and even Reagan struggled, and you know Reagan really left government with a, a bigger budget uh, than than he inherited. It is difficult, and it's difficult partly because of the democratic system which I was talking about, which is that there's a lot of vested interests in people who uh, owe their jobs to a government in one way or another. If you calculate the number of people who um, are getting state benefits of one sort and another, including state pensions, or who work for the government, or who work for for uh, companies that supply the government uh, or who are otherwise owe most of their living to government. In some parts of the country, I mean, in Scotland and, and Wales, it's approaching 70%. So it's not surprising that those people have an incentive in voting for big government. Uh, so I, I, I think that is uh, a serious uh, problem. And it's easy, of course, to invent new quangos and new regulations and all the rest of it. But if you say, oh, well, let's get rid of some regulations, people say, oh, which ones? And you say, well, what about these rules on you know, how to use a ladder? Oh, well, if you, if you scrap those, people will fall off ladders. And, and, you know, and of course, it only takes one person to fall off a ladder and, and the politicians just go, go into a, hit, a, a fit and, and then say, oh, no, we better bring these regulations back. So and quangos as well, very easy to set up a quango. Um, but very hard to get rid of them because once they're there, they create work for themselves. And you look at the regulatory offices, uh, gas, water, electricity, and all of these sorts, and rail, all of these sorts of things. They were set up during the privatization process in order to pretend to be competition. But they've become bigger and bigger and bigger because the companies have sort of gamed the system and therefore the regulators then have to try to work out how they're doing that and they take, have to take on more staff to go through their books in minute, de minute detail. Uh, that's not actually the way to do it. Uh, you, you need to be crude about these things uh, and uh, rather than try and go into every detail, because if you go into every detail, you'll end up having to have a huge staff. And, and, and uh, that uh, huge staff and huge enterprise will look out for itself. It won't look out for the the, the general public. It's uh, you know they have a vested interest in keeping it big. How do we restore? I suppose this is the the central mission of the Adam Smith Institute. How do we restore faith in free markets as opposed to crony capitalism? 
Well, by showing how they they work, I think uh, by uh, by trying to to do it, um, you know, I mean, the, the the way to get reduce corruption in high places is to get rid of high places, really. Uh, and I was well, people talk about crony capitalism. It's actually crony corporatism. I mean, it's it 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 is the the fact that the politicians have the power to give you tax concessions, to give you regulations that are in your favor and, and that might do down the opposition. It's the fact that you can dress it up and say, oh, well, we have to keep the cowboys out of this profession, so, so we, need, uh, we, we need regulation to stop this. What you mean is we need regulation to stop competition. So I think if, if we can get the politicians just to realize that a regulation and a law is not the solution to every problem and get them to back out of some of these things, then I think that uh, we would have much more competition and people would see the benefit of that. I mean, actually, if you look at telephones, when we started the Adam Smith Institute, British Telecom um, did actually give you a choice of phones. You could have a black one or a gray one. Um, and the trouble is it would take, if you were a business, it, it would take three months, uh, as it did with us, to, to get a line uh, in, uh, installed. And if you were at home, it could take you 18 months. So what you did is you bribed, bribed the engineer to do it earlier, of course. Which is what, so, so there you're, you're producing, um, you're producing uh, corruption in ordinary people. Uh, just because the the system is too highly regulated. So if you can introduce competition into these things, and telephones now, I mean, it's horrible, but it's a lot, lot better. You do actually have some competition and people make up their own packages and they decide what phone packages they want and all the rest of it. And it's more of a smorgasbord and people people choose for themselves rather than having government officials choose for them. Once people get used to that, then they ask for it in, in other sectors as well. And, uh, um, you know, the same has happened in broadcasting and so on. So I think that we've got to spread that much more widely. There's a, there's a brilliant, I came across a brilliant joke from uh, Reagan uh, from the mid-80s that he told in public. And it was a uh, guy goes to a car showroom in Moscow and says, I'd like to buy a car, please. And the guy said, yeah, that's fine. It'll be uh, five years waiting list. You know, waiting for five years, and the guy goes, "Okay, um, will you deliver it in the morning or the afternoon?" And the the, the guy in the showroom says, "What do you mean? It's going to be five years' time." And the guy goes, "Well, I've got the plumber coming in the morning." Mm-hmm. Yes, well, <laughs> um, uh, well, well, uh, this is actually not so far from the truth. Uh, we, we did a report on uh, looking at living standards in the Soviet Union. And it turns out that they uh, they would people in the Soviet Union during the Soviet era would eat um, uh, many more potatoes than the average Brit or American, um, but far less meat, for example. And in terms of refrigerators, um, America had uh, two thirds of households had refrigerators before uh, the Soviet Union hardly got started. And you would indeed be, if you wanted a refrigerator and you could afford it, um, you would go along to the shop and you would uh, uh, put in an order and uh, it would be available about 18 months later. 
And the the deal was, uh, you know, you know, you would be informed about this uh, when you could pick it up, and you had to pick it up that morning. And if you didn't pick it up that morning, it was gone. <laughs> so, it's Reagan was not so far from the truth. I seem to recall seeing seeing footage. I don't know if it was Khrushchev, but it was a, a Soviet leader. He was taken round a, a U.S. supermarket, and he refused to believe it was real. There was yes. so much choice on the shelves. He said it must have been a. It was like a Potemkin supermarket. Yes, that's right. And uh, well, well, that, that was famous when when uh, Khrushchev went to America, and and uh, Nixon took him to the uh, Ideal Home exhibition and so on. Mm. He just thought this is ridiculous. You know, no, people can't have washing machines and things like this. Um, and he also asked him who was in charge of food distribution in in New York because it seemed so efficient. And and Nixon said. Uh, Nobody's in charge of food distribution. <laughs> it's the markets. Uh, so, so that was interesting. But, but the the the, the case you mentioned, mentioned is interesting because I'm a trustee of a, a new thing which is called the Museum of Communist Terror, and uh, they, we have a website and we've been putting lots of little videos. And one of them is from a British member of Parliament of Polish extraction. And uh, he was uh, a, a member of Parliament some years ago. And he managed to get, during the Cold War days, he managed to get his father to come over to the UK on a holiday because they hadn't seen him in a long time. And uh, he took him to Oxford Street. And uh, his father went into Marks and Spencer's and looked around and, and, and said exactly what Khrushchev had, had said. That this, is, this, is, this must be a shop for, for the, the party uh, nomenclatura. And he said, no, no, anybody can, anybody can go into it. No, I don't believe it, he said. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come back tomorrow and I assure you that the uh, shelves will be empty. So he went back to the next day and the shelves were still full. <laughs> and then he started to dawn on him, no, this is... is how people in the West live, and and they didn't know that because communications were so bad. It was the, it was really the fax machine that broke the the Soviet Union. Uh, so, speaking of communist terror, the the approaching Labour government. Um, what what can we do to to protect ourselves against accidental Corbyn McDonaldism? Well, there's a great deal of ruin in a nation, as Adam <laughs> Smith said. Um, uh, does it not strike know. you as extraordinary that we've come to this this stage? That, well, because I, mean, I, 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 mean, I, I can barely remember the late seventies, but I, yeah. I I do remember the, the the grief that was involved in in, in living in, in during the winter of discontent, and the fact that people that, that we seem to be almost just drifting, drifting inexorably towards this happening as a result of a kind of death wish on the part of the Conservative Party. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean uh, some years ago I said, oh, I think we're past. Peak Corbyn, but I didn't realise that we weren't past peak uh, Tory incompetence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and this is, you know, I said to all of my uh, Tory friends who uh, were paying three pounds to join the Labour Party so they could vote, vote for Corbyn as leader, and I told them, I said, uh, accidents happen uh, in politics, and you could be electing somebody that <laughs> is a breath away from uh, being the prime minister. <laughs> And and that is now sort of where we are. 
Uh, I think when it comes, it, it's difficult to know because we are in such turmoil at the moment and hopefully something will be resolved and and things will settle down a bit bit more. But, uh, you know, people, for very good reasons, hate the, hate the Conservatives at the moment. And what is the alternative? Well, uh, Brexit, Brexit party, Brexit party. In the European elections, that may well be true. Otherwise, it's very difficult for third parties to break into the uh, first-past-the-post-Westminster system. European elections are different, but um, it's it's very hard for third parties to to get established, which is why people are are usually better off working through um, established parties rather than starting new ones. You know, like like the, the Social Democrats and the, merging into the Liberal Democrats and so on. Um, so I, I honestly don't know. I, it's, it's all adds to the uh, fascination of the nation. Did you did you ever notice any ambition to go into politics more directly yourself? No, never. And uh, you know, when I when we started, I used to go around giving speeches and so on. And people would say, "Oh, we need you know young people like you and uh, representing us and so on." And then, no, no, it's it's not me. Firstly, I, I don't fancy the idea of campaigning all the time. Um, and secondly, you have to make compromises in politics, so you end up voting for things that you don't believe in, and I believe in something very strongly. Um, and I think probably outside in a think tank, you know, I think I sometimes think I have more power in my little finger than a member of parliament does. So if somebody wanted to get into Austrian economics, what would be the Austrian economics 101 uh, primer that you would you would uh, recommend and then and what should they read after that well obviously they should read my book which is called an introduction to austrian economics oh perfect right yes indeed we we we, we set them up and you <laughs> knock them down <laughs> there's a big list of books on amazon that i can see i didn't see that one so so yeah that's, oh, well, that's you can get it from you can get it from the adam smith institute oh brilliant uh, and it, it, I, I think it's uh, free online there at adamsmith.org um, and I'm actually thinking of, but, but that goes up to um, not quite the present day. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a history, but it also explains the, the ideas in simple language, no, no words longer than an inch, all that kind of stuff. No footnotes and baggage and, and uh, bibliography and, and stuff. Very simple to read. And I'm thinking of doing another one. Um, on the, the modern Austrians, as I say, people like uh, Peter Beckke and uh, 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 Larry White and, and others who've, who've done a lot on on history of economic thought, but also um, on monetary economics and, uh, uh, and and how decisions are made and entrepreneurship, Israel Kirzner. Um So the, the, there's an interesting uh, crop of, of new uh, um, Austrian economists who are very much more accessible uh, than the old crop was um, and uh, who are doing some really exciting things. Are you familiar with a chap called Jörg Guido Hulsman, um, who I think teaches in France, but he's he's written a book called The Ethics of Money Production. And oh. I, I was I was gifted this by a, a fund manager in, in Switzerland, uh, Tony Deeden. And mm. the, the title was sufficiently off-putting that it took me about probably two years to pluck up the courage to open the, <laughs> to open the thing. But once I did it, it was, it was an absolute revelation. The one thing that, that the Austrian, at least the classic Austrian or the, or the classical uh, economists tend to focus on is sound money. And mm -hmm. I would argue that the one of the biggest failings in the current global economy, let alone our, our own, 
is that we don't have sound money anymore. We haven't had sound money for at least 40 years. And arguably never really have had, have had it. And as a former bond salesman, the concern I have is that at some point, this debt, global debt predicament is going to blow. And you kind of don't want that to happen on your watch. Do you, do you see merit in, for example, things like gold, gold and silver and perhaps cryptocurrency? Um, I've never really been a gold bug. Uh, we have, I'm secretary of the Montpellier Society, which was set up by an Austrian economist, F.A. Hayek, in 1947, uh, and uh, has lots of economists of different sorts. And we always have these discussions between uh, Austrians and competitive currency people and, and gold bugs and, uh, and market uh, monetarists and, and, and so on. Um, and I've never really been a gold bug. Uh, really, I think I think Friedman persuaded me out of this, which, you know, his view was that um, gold as a metal is so precious that you can't actually use it in everyday transactions. So what you have to do is to have a piece of paper saying, this is a piece of paper for one thousandth of an ounce of gold. And then once you start printing pieces of paper, then you've had it, right? Because uh, there's no limit to how many pieces of paper you can you can print, and that is the problem with um, and, and and that's the problem with with fiat money of any any sort. Um, cryptocurrencies, well, let's see. Um, you know, I don't know how they're going to work out at the moment. It's a speculative market. And I, I don't think it's a real market. And in some cases, the transaction costs are so huge that, it, again, it's no good for everyday transactions. So you're stuck with uh, um, state-produced uh, fiat money. Uh, competition in currency has a lot going for it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the reason that Hayek wrote about con uh, competition in, in currency uh, was that he lived in the southern part of uh, Germany, where, where you had uh, three different currencies, the French uh, franc and the Deutsche Mark and, and the uh, uh, Austrian uh, currency. So, uh, and, and people would trade freely every day in, in all three, and they'd take one and give you change back in another and all the rest of it. And, and, and people weren't phased by that. So I think that's probably the, the best way forward. If we could have... Uh, competition in currency, and then yes, one would dominate probably, but it couldn't inflate too much because then uh, people would start using using other ones, and you see that in South America, for example, or um, uh, other other places. I don't know. I was in uh, Nassau, Bahamas. It's a dollar economy. Um, everybody takes the dollars because it's it's more secure than than. Uh, than the currencies that have been produced locally <laughs> in South America. Um, so why not give people a choice? And, and, and that, I think, is the best way to preserve the soundness of your money. If it were possible to go back on the gold standard, do you think that could also be a solution? Because ultimately, even the, even the US dollar could eventually you know, hyperinflate because it's not backed by anything. Uh, yes, but then of course um, people could come forward with other currencies that would that would do the job, and this is one of the great troubles of the um, of, of the euro. If we if we basically kept the the Deutsche Mark, um, then we'd have a sound currency to to judge things by. Um, but we have, we have this just we have this just frank though. 
Well, that's right, yes. But all of these things cause problem. Uh, you know, the Swiss franc, for example, is so, again, so has become so valuable because it is so solid um, that they've got a real problem with that. It's, it's, uh, it, it's hard to, to make the conversion, if you like, because your currency is completely worthless compared to a Swiss, Swiss franc. So, so that causes problems. The gold standard caused, caused problems. Uh, um, you, you know, if, if there were a technological change and you needed, and you had growth from that, and you needed more cash, the gold standard uh, you know, didn't produce more cash, and then mine, new mines would be discovered and opened up, and you'd get inflation. Mm. So you did actually have uh, booms and busts and, and crashes uh, and bank failures under under the gold standard. On that topic, did you ever think that you would see negative interest rates in your lifetime? <laughs> uh, no, I was told at university that was a theoretical impossibility too, but uh, that's the way things <laughs> turn out. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's crackers. Um, the, if, you can have negative interest rates for a very short time, but I think if you make a habit of them, then um, there's something seriously wrong in your economy. Uh, people talk about uh, austerity and how you know we had a crash and now, now we've had 10 years of austerity. No, we haven't. Uh, government is still spending more than it's ever spent before in history. Um, and the rest of us are still spending more than we've ever spent in history. Uh, and we're keeping afloat on zero interest rates. Businesses that in the natural course of things would have faded away uh, and collapsed. But we're, we're preserving that economy in, like like a, a fly in, in the amber, um, rather than letting things move on. And one day you have to, I, you know, I was all in favor of quantitative easing because there was a monetary collapse. That's fine. But my worry was, will the Bank of England ever have the bottle to, uh, to, to raise interest rates when they need to be raised. And now we know uh, they haven't got the bottle to do that. And all sorts of politicians uh, would be horrified if they did that. Turns out emergency measures tend to be a bit more long-lasting than we might have feared. You, you said that you wouldn't necessarily endorse the role of the central bank, but given that we have one and it's going to be difficult to get rid of it anytime soon, who would you? Who would be your fantasy central you know, head, of the, <laughs> head of the UK central bank? Oh, I would import an American. I would import uh, Larry White, the Austrian economist. <laughs> I think he'd be very good. Uh, and uh, he, he would close it down in no time, yeah, and have the competition in banking. And, uh, of course, he's done a lot of work. He did a lot of work on uh, the banking system in the 19th century in the in the UK, where, again, you know, you had competing – in Scotland, certainly, you had competing banks issuing different currencies. Uh, so uh, – uh, you know, he, he he would know what he was talking about. So, what's in the pipeline for you, Eamon? You mentioned the, the you're going to be writing about one cheer for democracy. Um, is... Yes, I'm just trying to finish that. Yeah, we we, we better go then. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit like that, actually. It's one of these things that if you just get a sort of three days together without any interruptions, it's fine. But uh, the normal working week, I'm afraid, is lots of little things going on. So it's very difficult to to focus. And then you, you lose you lose your thread and then you've got to go back to the beginning and reread everything and uh, and then hope you can get another free period. So, so it is a problem. Anyway, I'm just uh, hopefully finishing that. Uh, um, this, well, hopefully, hopefully this month. Um, 
And uh, and then I'm thinking of doing Austrian economics. I've got I've actually got a, a long list of things that I think uh, need to to be done and, and that we need primers on. I, I I'm very keen on uh, getting young people to uh, understand the ideas, even if they disagree with them, to understand the ideas of free markets and, and the free society. And uh, I, I wrote a book, which I actually wrote for our, um, the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is our, our sort of friendly competitor on the free market uh, side. And um, and they've exported all over the world and had it translated into about 20 different countries. And I get people coming up to me in, I don't know, Sri Lanka and places um, saying, oh, you know, we've read your book. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, but all I did was to basically explain in words of one syllable how a free society works and how it's possible to run a society or for a society to run itself without having – some dictator giving you orders or even some parliament giving you orders. Um, and if you're in an emerging nation and an emerging economy, that's really quite interesting stuff because you've never heard it before. So I think it's uh, it's good that um, somebody at least is doing this in a way that isn't sort of self-indulgent and, and academic and where you're trying to show off you know, how, how many books you've read and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I want something that just explains things for the million. And what was the name of that that particular book? It's called um, uh, Foundations of a Free Society. Oh, right. Yes, I see. Is that the occasional papers? Um, Yes, it's it's an IEA uh, paper. That's right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. brilliant. I can see that. That's on uh, Amazon. That's on Amazon. Uh, yeah, yes, and it, I think it's probably free on um, uh, the Institute of Economic Affairs we- website as well. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, well, we'll put links to to everything in the show notes so people can oh, get, stuff, get yeah. hold of them. Um, sounds like an, an absolutely amazing resource. I'm going to be uh, reading the books myself. <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, I, I, I first I first started doing these little primers because my friend um, uh, John Blundell who went on to run the Institute of Economic Affairs. He used to organize these, these meetings in London, the, the Karl Menger Society. And there was a, a thing in London called the Alternative Bookshop. Uh, and it was a couple of libertarians, and, and they, they did sort of libertarian books. And they brought along lots of books. This meeting was about Hayek, uh, F.A. Hayek. And uh, they, called, they brought along lots of Hayek books, you see. Now, Hayek used to write big, thick books with kind of German style sentences that were two pages long and so on. Isn't and, that just a regular isn't that just a regular German sentence? Uh, well quite, yes, with the, <laughs> with the verb at the end, yes, that's right. <laughs> and and uh, um, uh, I, I saw it would invite along uh, business people as well as you know intellectuals. And I could see these business people looking at this table of books, picking them up, and you could see in their their brains were thinking, I'd, I'd love to know more, but where do I start? And yeah. I thought, I really need something which explains what Hayek is, Hayek is all about um, in words that a business person who doesn't have an academic background is intimidated by footnotes and, and glossaries uh, that they can actually understand and enjoy and, 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 and get some value from. So I, I wrote this little book on uh, Hayek, and the, the, the best advice I had came from my uh, colleague, which is he held held up his thumb and uh, he, he, uh, he looked at the, the width of his thumb and he said, no words longer than that. 
Right. Uh, and it's very good. And I said, well, what about spontaneous order? Which was I used to talk about. He said, you could use it once. <laughs> I, think I, I think I used it once. Uh, Brilliant. But um, it, it stops you getting into jargon. Um, and you have to explain things very simply. And I think more academics need to, to be doing that. More think tankers need to be doing that. It's easy to hide behind the the academia of it and what you what you're doing there is very honestly trying to to lay it open and uh, and explain it in layman's terms which is which is a, a real skill well yes it, it, it's it's hard work actually and to do it in a short uh, a short book is even harder than a, a long one um i could write long books in no time at all but it takes me a long time to write short ones because you have to work out well what things are really important that people really need to know um but you've also got to give them examples and so on because uh, they don't understand the jargon they don't they don't necessarily understand the the background so you've got to explain it to them so that takes more space so then you've got to leave other things out um, so you you really are uh, looking at it with a, a scalpel and just just saying right let's cut this right down to the to the bare bones and give give people a, a skeleton that they can understand and then if they're really interested they can go and flesh it out in other places. Excellent. I look forward to reading them. Sounds sounds fascinating. Well, that segues quite neatly onto media picks, really, doesn't it? Paul? I think it does. Yes. Um, Eamon, did Tim mention about uh, media picks? I don't think so, but carry on. Okay. Uh, so what we do is um, we we try to recommend something that we've either seen, it could be a film or read a book or, or something, an article on uh, whatever subject it might be, but something that's either really caught your eye and, and you really think it's fantastic, but it could also be something that you've found that you really hate and you've, you've got to avoid it, like a <laughs> trap that you could fall into, say. Um, no. So... Um, Perhaps if we could start with Tim, and then I'll do mine, so you give you a bit of time to think of something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. Go but, on. Uh, Tim, so, what, what, so, so, what's yours? So mine, mine is is an absolute belter. It's ah. uh, a film. It's 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 a film called The Happening. Uh, and for anyone that's seen the films of M Night Shyamalan, even by the standards of later career M Night Shyamalan, this is a doozy. So it stars uh, Mark Wahlberg, the Oscar-winning uh, thespian, not uh, Zoe, Zoe Deschanel, who people will know as uh, New Girl, and uh, John Leguizamo. Um, nobody acts in this film. Um, it's quite incredible to think it was ever made. Oh, wow. There's, there's, it's, it, the, 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 the very brief uh, premise is that people are starting to kill themselves around the country, uh, around the northeast of America in 2008. Bear in mind, this is a long time before Trump was even elected, so it doesn't have any sort of political resonance necessarily. It's it's almost unwatchably awful. There is one, to give you an idea of how unwatchably awful it is, bad, it, it is there's one sequence that, that is supposed to shock, whereby a guy walks into a tiger cage and then tigers rip both his arms off. And it's just hilarious. It's laugh out loud funny. Oh, so wow. if, if you're a fan of basically accidentally appalling films, because I, I can't <laughs> believe this was meant to be a comedy. It's called The Happening. I, I caught it on one of the sort of these niche channels during the week because I was having a long, dark tea time of the soul over Brexit. <laughs> and it's just it's I just I, I words fail to do it justice. It's so appalling, even by M. Night Shyamalan standard. <laughs> it, it's just a stinker. How recent is it? it, it 2008. 2008. 2008. Okay. 
Um, so it's kind of like mid mid cycle Shire Marlin, but right. um, it's just it's just incredible. Wow. It's one of those things. It's one of those things. How on earth do they get the money? To, where did who supplied the money to make this film? Did they not read the script? Wow, brilliant! <laughs> it's amazing. It always fascinates me how stuff gets made like that. It really, really does. Um, my my one's got to sort of be on the other end of the spectrum, then, Tim. Um, uh, I don't know if you've heard of a film called Untouchable, which is not the Kevin Costner film. It's not uh, the Unbreakable film by M Night Shyamalan. No, 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 no. This is this is called uh, no. This is a French film. It's um, it's uh, you so, you so is, watch, it, is it uh, uh, Untouchable? Uh, yeah, and it was called Intouchables in uh, in in English. Okay. Uh, sorry, in French, and they translate it as Intouchables, and then it's called Untouchable uh, on. Um, uh, on IMDb, but it's an absolutely fantastic film. It's probably one of the best films you're going to see, and I, I really mean that. It's um, it's uh, basically about a quadriplegic guy who's very rich, and he he needs somebody to to look after him. And a the, the character that comes to look after him is someone that they they're not particularly pleased about the family aren't pleased about but it's it's an amazing uh story that's based on a true story but it's a fantastic life affirming entertaining um uh, you know film very very well made very well shot it's got nobody in it who's famous and it's just still it's just absolutely excellent I, i i don't particularly go for films just because it's got someone in it i go for films because of the story and this story is amazing so very much worth watching untouchable and it's um i think it's one of the highest grossing french uh films of all time so uh that that goes to show mm. well i'll give you two ah, uh, firstly I, I i'll give you two because i think you guys are living in the past uh, <laughs> thank you very much you could be yeah, right yeah well, i'll tell you why because you know people talk about hollywood uh, movies and so on but um in fact uh netflix is now bigger than hollywood uh, and there's some fantastic stuff, you know, things like The Crown and so on, which yes. is absolutely brilliant. I yes. lived through that era, and it's just just like reading the papers at the time. It's exquisite. Um, and uh, there's one on the Roman Empire, and they've just they've just uh, put one up on Caligula, and it's absolutely brilliant. And it's a, it's that's, they really make you understand how the minds of these people and how, how they worked. And he, he wasn't just a Caligula wasn't just a complete nutter. Um, they, they sort of explain how his personality changed and why it might have changed and, and all the rest of it. But the, the one that I, I think the film that I do remember is there used to be a, a TV series about spin doctors called um, The Thick of It. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they did in 2009 they did a uh, a movie spin-off called In the Loop, and it had uh, it was by um, uh, Armando Anucci, um, and it had uh, Peter Capaldi as the, the lead character and so on, um, and uh, it was by all accounts very funny. Anyway, my wife said, oh, you, we must go and see this. You know, it's very much up your, your street. So I thought, well, oh, fine. Okay, I'll go and see this. And we came out of the uh, cinema. And it's about a spin doctor and how, you know, he spins things one way and then something happens and he has to spin it the other way. And it's, it's, it's all very slapstick and so on. But um, uh, we came out of it and uh, my wife said, uh, golly, wasn't that fantastic? That was the funniest film I've seen in years, you see. 
And I said, I didn't think it was funny at all. That's exactly how it works. It just <laughs> works like the comedy does. That's how spin doctoring in Westminster works. It's awful to watch. Wow. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned Netflix, Simon, but in, mm-hmm. in, in our defense for watching traditional Hollywood films, I'm going to quote very selectively from a, it's actually a reader response to an FT article about Uber. So someone, mm-hmm. someone's written abbreviated version of prospectus. We don't make money. We probably will never make money. Our current business relies on shareholders to fund cheap cab rides and the hope that regulators will let us become a monopoly and charge whatever we want, but the regulators aren't playing. We've therefore spent <laughs> more money expending into other low-margin, highly competitive activities like food delivery or trucking. We hope in the future there will be driverless cars, and then we can make money. We've annoyed lots of regulators, so we have lots of disputes and problems with regulators. We don't pay much tax. We've done lots of aggressive tax planning. We've lots of disputes and problems with the tax authorities. We don't employ anyone. We don't actually own many assets. We have an app, but other cab companies also have apps. Current investors want to get out, so we hope you'll buy some shares because you've heard of us. Um, I'm kind of hearing the Netflix business model here. It's actually it's actually a very inviting prospectus, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> because you know they don't pay tax, they annoy regulators, they don't employ anybody. I mean, that's that's this a good business model. Like we found the perfect we found the perfect business model. We'll lose money on every sale, but we'll make up for it in volume. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Well, a lot of people did that. Yeah, I mean, well, look, Amazon was, uh, you know, a loss maker for a long, 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 long time, um, and now everybody buys everything on on uh, on Amazon. So, yeah, it, it's completely changed the the way that we do shopping. Yeah. Uh, and I think that uh, Uber and Lyft and all of these things are exactly the same, and Airbnb is the same, and that's why people are trying trying to stop them. Hoteliers are, are trying to. Uh, stop uh, Airbnb, and some extent uh, they've been very successful. I mean, if you go to America, uh, go down the Florida, Florida Keys, as I do occasionally, um, you can't rent a house uh, for a short period of time. I used to go and rent a house for a week. You can't do it anymore because the regulator has said, "Oh no, to protect the hotel industry, um, you can only have a long-term uh, let." I mean, this is ridiculous. ridiculous. Uh, so uh, you know we're. we're these these things are really knocking the old established regulated monopolies and a good thing too yeah and and so if somebody wanted to get in contact with you Eamon, how would they do that are you on twitter or would it be via your uh, website or i have uh, facebook and uh, twitter and linkedin um, and I'm pretty easy to find. You just put your name on Butler and you'll probably find me. Um, or you can always contact me at the Adam Smith Institute. Um, uh, just, just go to info at uh, uh, adamsmith.org. Brilliant. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for taking time out. Good luck with yes, the new book. Thank you. And we look forward to, to reading it when it comes out. Great stuff. So will I. It's going to be very interesting. <laughs> I don't Fantastic. know how it's going to turn out. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it'll be great. I'm sure it'll be great. Thank, thank you so much, Amy. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. Bye. Yeah. Bye. 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 Just leaves me to say thank you so much for listening. Have a fantastic Easter and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.